I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about polarization in American politics and society, we have with us Dr. Liliana Mason of the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins. Um, Dr. Mason, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. So your first book, it's a famous book, and you know people like Ezra Klein look at you as the guru of polarization, and I do too. So I wanted to bring you on today to ask you, can you first give us like a big picture view of what is polarization today in America with politics and our society? And, you know, how did we really get here and, and why are we here? Yeah, the, so the traditional view of polarization a few decades ago was that it meant that Democrats and Republicans severely disagreed with each other about the role of government and what policies the government should enact. And that was kind of the prevailing view for a long time. But then in the 90s and early 2000s, it became pr- pretty clear that Americans aren't actually very polarized in their policy preferences. But instead, they they seem to really dislike one another. So that was a puzzle that I was really interested in exploring. You know, how is it that people can generally hold, um, you know, common policy preferences, but on a political level still hate one another? So my research basically uses uses theories from social psychology and intergroup conflict, which, you know, in psychology, there's plenty of reasons that groups hate each other without disagreeing about, you know, taxes. And so, <laughs> so there's all kinds of theories that can be used from psychology. And that, so I brought those into the study of kind of why Democrats and Republicans would have this, this sense of animosity. And, and what, I, what I ultimately found is that First of all, partisanship is has become a very strong identity of its own. And, and people tend to defend the status of the groups with which they identify. So, you know, people prefer to beat the other group, to have to be victorious over the other group rather than have like the greater good of everybody. And then the second thing that happened is that a bunch of other social identities moved into alignment with partisanship. So over the last few decades, really, and the process started in the 1960s as a response to civil rights legislation, which alienated white Southern Democrats, who gradually moved out of the Democratic Party over a generation. You know, then by now, they're all Republicans. And uh, so we have Basically, at this point, you know, a Republican Party that's largely white and, and Christian and uh, rural and a Democratic Party that's more urban, educated, racially diverse, religiously diverse. And so the sort of separation of those identities from each other along partisan lines really increased the potency of those partisan identities so that every time there's an election, so right, elections are regularly scheduled status competitions, right? And before we had all these identities linked to our party, it was just a status competition between the parties. And so it didn't matter that much. But once the status competition is linked to all these other central identities like race and religion, those elections become really sort of dire. And the outcome feels much more important on an individual kind of psychological level for people. And so they become much more defensive of their party and they become much more invested in the outcome of the election. And they also, you know, sort of think of the other party as, you know, the, the other party's rule as illegitimate and un-American because it's nothing like them. 
So that's sort of how we got to this point. So, so we're really, you know, as you're describing it, it's a my team versus your team. It's not. It's no longer. I'm going to go to the election booth. I'm going to go to the poll, and I'm going to pull a lever because, you know, I want my taxes lowered, or because I want more government programs, or because I want a boost in funding and education. People are now going because it's really my team versus your team, and my team is people who are just like me, and your team is the other. Is that really where we are? Yeah, to a large extent. I mean, the the on average, even even now. On average, the, you know, if you look at in the American National Election Studies, which is a giant study of Americans that's done every four years, if you just look at the average positions on really salient issues, abortion, immigration, health care, gun control, and taxes, you actually see that even Republicans, on average, across all those positions, are to the left of center. And Democrats are further to the left. But on average, on a policy-based level, America is a left-leaning country. But if you ask people whether they're liberal or conservative, the majority of people say they're conservative. So that means there's a whole bunch of people who say they're, say they're conservative, identify as conservative, and, and hold moderate to progressive policy attitudes. So wait, the majority of the people in America say they're conservative, but the Republican Party doesn't get as many votes in presidential elections as the Democratic Party. So how does that all square? Yeah, so it's, well, it's more that the when people say America is like a, a conservative nation or a right-leaning nation, that's what they're talking about is the number of people who call themselves conservative. Um, I see. And, and conserv- the problem with the term conservative is that it means different things to different people. So you can be a conservative fiscally in your own family. You can be conservative religiously. You can think of being conservative in a lot of the ways that are, that are not political. And, and so when we ask people that question, sometimes they answer it in a non-political way, but we don't understand. We don't have a way of knowing that, right? In the in terms of the way we measure it, and so so we end up with this mismatch between people who identify as conservative and people who are politically actually politically conservative on policies. And so you know, when when politicians look at the electorate and see all these self-identified conservatives, they think like, okay, great, you know, we've got all these self-identified conservatives. That's what the country wants. Not understanding that it doesn't actually translate perfectly into policy preferences. And even if popular policies are enacted, it's still really hard to get people who are strongly identified with their party to vote for the other party, right? They they would have to be either extraordinarily pleased with what's happening in their own life based on what the government and give credit to the government for doing it, or they would have to be extraordinarily displeased. And so, like, for instance, after the, you know, the Great Recession in George W. Bush's second term. So there is some reaction to outcomes, to governmental outcomes, but it's it really requires gigantic shifts. And even now, you know, it's unclear, you know, approval of Trump. We had a, you know, we had a global pandemic and, a, and an economic crisis at the same time. And his approval ratings didn't really change. So it seems like as we go forward, it becomes stickier and stickier and stickier, right? Like who, who people vote for is just a predetermined choice, kind of regardless of what's going on. And there's, there's some people, you know, that are kind of not paying as much attention that, that are slightly more persuadable. But the people who identify as partisans really think that the people in the other party are, and you know, we've measured this, are downright evil. Like we've said those words and people agree with that statement. Well, one of the things I've noticed is that maybe for the first time in this last couple election cycles, Americans truly 
identify with one party as it's like it's become their identity. It's no longer, you know, part of their life. It's their identity itself. And I've noticed that, you know, even adult friend groups, people who used to mix who are both Republicans and Democrats, they don't really mix anymore after the Trump years. And, you know, and one group will say, well, my identity is aligned with Trump. And the other group will say, I'm a Democrat. And then they they really can't mix and mingle at cocktail parties anymore. They can't, you know, have dinner together. And, you know, have you seen evidence of this? Because, you know, in my world, there's lots of people who really don't have a lot to say to each other anymore here in Washington, you know, after the Trump years. So first of all, what you're observing is a real thing that's been happening. And those those sort of, you know, ways of coming across people who are not in your party via other group identities, right? So, you know, it, there used to be a time when like Democrats and Republicans went to the same church, for instance, right? Or, you know, their kids went to the same school because they lived in the same neighborhood. And increasingly, and those are called, we call them cross-cutting identities. It just gives people a chance to see people in the other party from a different perspective that's very humanizing. It allows you to be, you know, kind of generous with your interpretations of their behaviors and their and their thoughts. And it's exactly those types of cross-cutting identities that have been disappearing from, from American society. And so that's part, you know, sort of this long trend that, that is kind of culminated with the Trump administration. But really, I think part of it also happened during the Obama administration, where not because of anything Obama did, but just simply by the fact that he was a black president, what his presidency did was really clarify for people who had not been paying attention before what a Democrat looks like. And along with partisan news, helped to show people this is us and that's them, right? These are our people. Those are their people. And that's really the Tea Party was very much a response to that. And then having established that sort of new kind of alignment, what the Trump presidency did was really cement the, you know, the, the, especially the racial divide between, between the parties. And, and what you're talking about in terms of, you know, having uncomfortable, you know, cocktail parties or Thanksgiving dinners, you know, I think one, one thing to make clear is, first of all, it's largely a white person thing, right? It's the divide that's happened has been between white Democrats and white Republicans, because, you know, the African-American community is extraordinarily Democratic. Um, Hispanics are less so, but still highly Democratic. And so, you know, this is this kind of really deep rift. And the main cause of it is white Democrats who believe that systemic racism is real and is a problem that we need to address and white Republicans who don't believe that that's the case. And so there's the, the really central rift between white Democrats and white Republicans is about whether or not this country has gone far enough in moving towards a you know multi-ethnic egalitarian democracy or whether we should go backwards and and so th- and that's a really difficult conversation to have because it really is like pulling on the same rope right there it's very hard to find a compromise place in should we go backwards or should we go forwards there's there's sort of nowhere to compromise on that and so that type of conversation is really hard to have it's very loaded right just the word racist is almost you know forbidden in in polite conversation and you know for good reason not talking about racism protects racism but that's you know increasingly it becomes this really loaded conversation that is impossible to come to a compromise on or to find common ground on and most people want to avoid even 
having that conversation at all. So that's, you know, that's underlying a lot of these really uncomfortable interactions that we're seeing is that, you know, the reason they're uncomfortable is because we're talking about really essential things about American democracy and equality. And those things, you know, no one's going to compromise on those. So I take it you believe that racism is a major cause of polarization, as you just described. How did it become such a heavy-duty part of what's happening now? Did it start with Obama? Was it pre-Obama? I think a lot of us weren't aware of what was building during Obama at the time. Well, it was definitely before, you know, the Southern strategy, right, of, of Nixon and Reagan intentionally took advantage of white racial animosity, right? And But it did so in a kind of coded way. And so that it didn't, it wasn't, you know, apparent to people who weren't listening for the kind of symbolic language. That's sort of what I mean is now there's no holds barred. It's it's all out on the table. And, you mm-hmm. know, during Obama, we started, you know, things were underlying and they were undercutting undercurrents of, of political discourse. But after Obama, things seemed to really just blow up. And you're right, like even the Tea Party said that they were about taxes, right? But the best predictor of somebody identifying as a Tea Party supporter is their racial attitudes. And so part of this is just the way that Trump speaks. He is a brash person who enjoys creating conflict, right? He's a reality TV person. Like that's conflict is the bread and butter of reality television. And it and that's it's for a reason because it gets attention, right? And so creating conflict is the way for anyone who is comfortable with doing that. It's a great way to get attention. And and Trump really, you know, took advantage of that. And he was kind of very well suited to be doing that, right? He was almost the only person who, who felt comfortable just digging deeper and deeper and deeper into things that created conflict. In particular, you know, using racist language, using misogynistic language, and just kind of being overt about saying, you know, forget PC culture, right? Like you don't have to worry about the language that you use anymore. We can say whatever we want. Don't, don't worry about other people's feelings. Like this is, you know, now, now that I'm president, we can just, we can talk the way that we always wanted to talk before. And it's not that he made people racist, right? But he uniquely attracted people who, before he was a political figure, so this is a, a recent article that, that I wrote with Julie Ronsky and John Kane. We looked at people's attitudes in 2011, before he was a real political figure, their attitudes towards Black Americans, Latino Americans, Muslims, and LGBT Americans, and people who disliked those groups in 2011, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or independents, were the most likely to like Trump, approve of Trump in 2018. So... The, so what he did was act as a lightning rod for people who already held those attitudes, and he gave them permission to say them out loud. And that's the type of thing that, you know, most politicians before him were, you know, thought was the third rail, right? They thought it would destroy their campaigns if they went that far. And for a lot of politicians, it, it did, you know, it would have. But Trump was this unique figure, and he was able to get away with it. And also, I think, because he came after Obama you know, there was a latent readiness among among Americans to say, at least this certain faction of Americans, to say, you know, we've had a black president, we've made all the racial progress we need to make. It's now white people who are being victimized and and underestimated and, you know, and so let's let's, you know, take the country back, essentially. That's what MAGA is. 
And so he he was able to do this sort of uniquely, but not inevitably. You know, what I, I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> it you know. No, I know what you mean. So yeah, so I think so I think that what Trump did was, and and the other thing is that when if we just think about human psychology, right? When when someone tells you that it's okay to break a rule, it can be really exhilarating. And his rallies really turned into this, you know, mixture of exhilaration and anger, you know, together, which is which is almost intoxicating, right? It was a, it was a huge bonding cultural moment for people who attended those rallies. They left feeling great. And so he, you know, it's like if the principal comes over the loudspeaker in school and says, okay, there's no more rules, you know, everybody could do whatever they want. You're going to have very happy kids running like crazy through the hallways, right? And that's, that's a, you know, sort of what Trump did for this group of people was say, there's no more rules. You don't, you can do whatever you want now. And they, and they did. And that's, and that's kind of what we're still, what we're seeing in a lot of the, in the sort of day-to-day conflicts that we see in the, in the regular electorate. And conversely, our Republicans have fired back and basically call all Republicans now racist. So you've got that on the other side. This is a caveat to this to this research that we did where we so we looked at these, you know, 2011 attitudes towards marginalized groups predicting 2018 Trump support. But the important caveat here is that they didn't those attitudes did not predict support for Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell or the Republican Party in general. They just predicted support for Trump. And there was no equivalent on the Democratic side. So people who disliked, you know, the groups that are associated with the Republican Party, so whites, Christians, people who disliked those groups, there's no predictive ability. You can't predict people's attitudes towards Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or or the Democratic Party as a whole. And so the thing that Trump did was a was actually a pretty unique step. He was uniquely attracting this group of people. And so it's not that Republicans are racist, right? People who liked Mitch McConnell in 2018 were, you know, you couldn't guess that from what what they thought of marginalized groups in 2011. And so it's that's why I think of it as like a faction of Americans, not necessarily Republicans, but they have taken over the Republican Party to a large extent and the infrastructure of the Republican Party and certainly the primary voters of the Republican Party. But not every Republican likes this. Right. Not every Republican agrees. And and the problem is that those people who feel, you know, disaffected or even disgusted with this type of language and this type of behavior because we have such strong partisan identity, they have to choose between, you know, voting for this, for this, you know, distasteful behavior or people who exhibit this distasteful behavior or a Democrat, which they've spent, you know, their whole life thinking of as evil and, and threatening. And, and so that's a really difficult decision for people to make. It, and often they won't, they, you know, the Democrat seems worse to them. And so it's an impossible position for, for you know, the, the Republicans who are not part of that faction to be in. On the Democratic side, there's a lot of polarization, too. And even within the party, there's polarization. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the Democratic Party is like qualitatively different than the Republican Party in that the Republican Party is pretty homogeneous. So if you pick two random Republicans out of the electorate, the chance that they're, they have the same race and religion is pretty high. If you randomly pick two Democrats out of the electorate, the chance that they have the same race and religion is pretty low. So the the Democratic Party is just a mix of a hugely diverse group of people. And and so, you know, 
one of the things that does actually is tamp down some of the Republicans' ability to have, you know, message control and um, and even, you know, move towards extremism is, is Democrats don't have that same ability because they have too many different factions to 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 placate. And also, you know, there's this book by uh, Matt Grossman and, and, and Dan Hopkins that looks at the difference between Democrats and Republicans and finds that, you know, Republicans are much more purist and and Democrats are really motivated to just get policy passed to help the various factions of their party. So so the you know Democratic Party is trying to actually, you know, create <laughs> policy and legislation. And that obviously, you know, some legislation benefits part of the party and not others and vice versa. And so it's really, really a complex problem and challenge for them. But the other problem is that the Republican Party is motivated to pass zero legislation and campaign entirely on this sort of, you know, white grievance politics because most of the legislation they try to pass is actually pretty unpopular in the electorate. People don't love tax cuts for billionaires, right? And and so the, the party didn't have a platform in 2020. There wasn't any policy platform at all. So it's this really asymmetrical challenge where Democrats are arguing with each other about which policies to pass. Meanwhile, their opposition is a party that doesn't actually care about legislating anything at all and can and can do perfectly well electorally, partly because of where Republicans live and how our Constitution you know, counts votes, but they can do well electorally by really leaning into this sort of culture wars, white grievance politics and riling up their base that way. Do you see any end in sight to the culture wars and this type of behavior? I mean, not any day soon. (laughs) It's it's, you know, looking at even just like the, you know, the school board arguments over, you know, what they call critical race theory, but is really just American history. You know, the this idea that talking about racism is racist, it's consistent with what we've actually seen throughout American history, where, you know, any time that we've made like really big racial progress, um, like Reconstruction, right? Reconstruction was a hugely successful program that created thriving Black communities that were protected by federal troops and that, you know, after eight years came under so much terrorism from white supremacists um, that that the federal troops retreated and and these communities were destroyed. Uh, so, you know, massive progress, huge backlash. And then in the 1960s, again, massive progress towards racial progress. And then immediately thereafter, the Southern strategy started. Right. And so we have this movement towards creating a new white supremacist party in the in the in the Republican Party. Whereas previously it had been the Democratic Party. And then, you know, you can look at Obama's presidency and, you know, sort of the rise of Black Lives Matter and a lot of the success of these activists as sort of the third, you know, wave of progress towards racial racial justice and equality. You know, Trump and this MAGA faction of America, the empowerment of this MAGA faction of Americans is kind of the backlash to that. So you can kind of see a pattern the question is, you know, at what point do we get to the place where the backlash, you know, doesn't succeed? <laughs> and we haven't gotten there yet. So we've never gotten there. So, you know, it's unclear. The way that I think about it is like we're on the bumpy part of the road, either towards a smoother road or towards a cliff. 
And it's, you know, the question is whether or not we, you know, we, we're in it right now. So we can't, we can't possibly know what we're, what's going to end up happening. But, but ultimately, you know, the fact that the parties are divided on whether or not we should be moving towards a more, you know, uh, multi-ethnic egalitarian democracy is that, that is the pull, right? It's, are we going towards a smooth road or are we going off a cliff into something that's not really democracy anymore? If you're a Republican or a Trump-lican, Trump Republican, <laughs> and you're listening to this, you're going to say, well, yeah, we might not have had a, a party platform at the convention, but those things are kind of dumb anyway. And we do have policies. We, have, we, we care about immigration. We care about COVID in a certain way. We care about, I mean, there's a lot of things that they really care about from a policy standpoint. So they wouldn't say, if you ask them, are you devoid of policy? They'd say, absolutely not. We care about less government. We care about less taxes. We care about a different global health approach. We care about a different approach to immigration. And so, you know, and those are issues that Trump really made and and is making, you know, his issues. So how do you reckon with that? If Republicans really believe that they have policy, Democrats also agree that they have, also believe that they have policy, but neither can sit down anymore and talk about policy in a rational way. What happens to our society? Um, yeah. So, so one of the issues with the, you know things like immigration, and even now you know gun control and healthcare, is that before the Obama presidency, those issues were uncorrelated with racial attitudes, and after Obama became president, even those types of kind of non-racial issues, they're now correlated with racial attitudes. So you can predict someone's attitudes on gun control based on whether or not they believe that systemic racism is a problem. And and so it's this is what Michael Tesler calls a spillover effect. So, you know, racial racial attitudes have kind of spilled over into a whole bunch of things that used to be non-racial policies. Um, so that and that's something that kind of is subconsciously happening. And that's part of the reason that the, that these conversations are so difficult is because we're not actually talking about what we say we're talking about. And a lot of the anger and defensiveness that we bring to these conversations is coming from this sort of deeply rooted sense of status threat, where both sides are coming to this to this conversation with the you know with a sense that the other people on the other side are trying to harm their status in society or trying to reduce their status in society, and and it's not absolute status; it's relative status, right? It's like. Like it, you know, sort of the the white Christian male is always at the has always been at like the top of the of the traditional social hierarchy. He, he's not moving down, but but other people are moving up, and so it's the it's the distance, the relative distance between that person and the people further down the ladder that's changing, and that status that status threat is deeply and almost primally psychologically threatening. And when you when you're dealing with that type of psychological threat often it just bleeds into every other conversation that you're having, especially when you're having the conversation with the people who you think are threatening you. And it's it's not a rational process. It's not even necessarily a conscious process. But, you know, human beings are not are not rational. <laughs> we're very much driven by emotion and identity. And that's just how we're built. I mean, that's just, that's why we have society. And so we, it'd be great if we were all rational, but we're not, we're just not. So, you know, this is, it's, it, it, it's sort of important to look at the, the difference between what we say we're talking about 
and what's actually really going on kind of underneath and why, you know, that's sort of why we're having these arguments about critical race theory or why we're having arguments even about mask wearing or or vaccination because it becomes connected to the party. And once it's connected to politics, then you have, you know, it's all of a sudden all these other identities become implicated in whether or not you're going to, you know, even just like get a vaccine. And mask wearing is actually, there's good new political science research showing that mask wearing is related to masculinity. So like the people who, who really value their, you know, their maleness are the least inclined to wear a mask. And it's, and it's sort of this, not sure if it's like, you know, being tough or, or just not liking other people telling you what to wear, but it is related to that. And so it's, this is also correlated with partisanship. So, you know, all of these things that feel like, well, we could have a rational conversation about that, right? It's just a mask, like it's a piece of cloth that you put on your face, or it's it's just a vaccine, you, you've taken dozens of them in your life, you're required to take them for school, right? These things that seem like they should have a rational compromise position, and we should be able to talk it through. We, we won't be able to talk it through because it's not about the facts of the of the policy. It's about who wins by endorsing the policy. And if you're if your party isn't winning, you're not going to endorse the policy. That's just the end of it. Your next book, which comes out in the spring, and we're going to have you back when the book comes out, focuses on really how Americans have become hateful towards each other and how the hate is driving polarization and that that could and has already led to political violence. Can you give us a little preview of what's going to be in the book and what the thesis is? Yeah. So this is a book with Nathan Calmo called Radical American Partisanship. We started this project in 2016 because I had written my book about people hating partisans, hating each other. And Nathan had written a book about partisanship during the Civil War. And we were kind of looking at our our various measures and saying like, maybe we're not measuring contemporary partisan animosity as far as we should be, because we know how far it went during the Civil War and it got very bad. So uh, maybe our measures actually are limited and we're not getting the extremity of of these attitudes. So we came up with a bunch of uh, survey questions that we honestly thought were too extreme for people to 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 say yes to right like we didn't think that people would agree with these statements and and so we you know we said like to what extent do you think that people in the other party are are not just wrong they're downright evil or you know people in the other party are are a threat to the united states and its people they behave like animals and so they shouldn't be treated like humans and that's that's the scale that we created that we ended up ca- that calling moral disengagement which is basically the psychological state that you have to be in in order to in order to enact violence right or or you know that generally has to be in place before someone can be violent against another group of people and still consider themselves to be a good person and it, we've seen it in you know pr- prior to genocides all over the world and so those set of attitudes and then a second set that they're just honest endorsements of political violence like to what extent do you think it's okay to use violence to achieve your political goals. And is it okay to to threaten and harass leaders from the other party? Is it okay to threaten and harass regular people from the other party in a way that makes them feel frightened? And so what we what we found is that the the moral disengagement items were pretty pretty popular actually. 60% of Americans are willing to say that the other party is evil. 
and similar, like so there were, I think like 50-ish percent are saying that the, the other party's a threat to the United States and its people. Lower numbers, around 30 percent, 30 to 40 percent, are actually dehumanizing people in the other party, say that they should be treated like animals. The violent attitudes are less prevalent, which is a good thing. But in general, you know, just agreeing that violence today is at least a little bit appropriate ranges between 10 and 20, most of the time between 10 and 20 percent of partisans say that it's at least a little bit justified uh, to use violence to achieve political goals. And that responds to events. So there's a spike in that during the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, and there's a spike after the after the 2020 election and the January 6th events and the second impeachment. So there's, we're not, we did the, we did a survey in November of 2020 and then one in February of 2021. So we're not sure what that spike is exactly related to, but it's probably all of those things. But we, yeah, these attitudes, they respond to events in real time and they are, you know, increasingly prevalent among people who are especially strongly identified with their party. So one of the best predictors of, of these morally disengaged and violent attitudes is people being strongly identified as Democrats or Republicans. So did we see a result of this with the January 6th insurrection? Yeah. So we saw this big spike in violent attitudes after, well, but unfortunately it was in February, so we're not exactly sure, but we saw a big spike in approval of violence in February. And then that approval didn't go back down to regular levels in our most recent study, which was in June. So it's, it seems like we're kind of in a, a new normal with a higher baseline level of approval of violence. We also know we've seen, we happen to have a, a survey in the field in, in 2018 during the week. There was one week when the Tree of Life synagogue shooting occurred and there was the guy mailing pipe bombs to Democrat, to prominent Democrats. That all happened in one week. And we just happened to have a survey in the field during that time. And we saw a significant spike in approval of violence after that violent week. So after violent events occur, approval of violence increases on average. And that happens in both parties. So just both partisans of both parties, when they see violent stuff occur, they, they approve of it even more. That goes away pretty quickly. So that's the good news is that, you know, if everything quiets down, then those attitudes go back to normal usually. But you know, you can imagine a terrible, you know, cascade, eff cascade effect of, you know, event and change in attitudes, another event. And the, the other thing that we that we also found that's important, and this is going back to what I was saying earlier about how, like, the central thing between Democrats and Republicans is, is, you know, these equality attitudes. We actually looked at racial resentment and sexism and found that the most so this is this is the, the important caveat average levels of these radical attitudes for democrats and republicans are the same but they're for completely different reasons so among republicans the most radical so those those who have the highest moral disengagement and approval of violence are the ones who are highest in racial resentment and sexism among Democrats, it's the opposite. So for Democrats, the most radical are the low people who are low in racial resentment and sexism, which makes, I think, it, it makes it very, very clear what is motivating this argument, right? It's they, these radical attitudes exist not because people are going crazy, but because the argument that they're having is so passionate and intractable, there's, right? There's no way to compromise on that, on that argument. And so the, the radicalism of these attitudes is, is partially a reflection of how intense 
this art, you know, the, the debate between Democrats and Republicans about equality has become, you know, it's important to know the prevalence of these attitudes, but it's also important to look into why. Right. And and I think that we've you know, we've really identified one of one of the major issues is is just this very, very intense disagreement. Does this research that you've done most recently lead you to believe that there's any end in sight to this cycle or is it do you think it's going to continue to accelerate? I think it'll get worse before it gets better. Uh, You know, this is not a this is not an easy debate to have. And the fact that we have, you know, the last time the parties were divided on the issue of racial equality was the Civil War. And they were on opposite sides. Right. The Democrats were the ones who were against equality. But when we have a two party system and one of the parties has now through this process of, you know, this gradual process of, of, you know, identity-based sorting, one of the parties has really kind of taken the, the side of, you know, pushing for racial and gender equality, and the other is pulling back. We don't have any other parties <laughs> to kind of allow, you know, side arguments or this MAGA faction of people that have kind of taken over the Republican Party in a, you know, proportional representation system, they would be their own party and they would they would get 30 percent or less of the vote. But because they're because we only have two parties, you know, they get half of it and they don't actually get half of it. But our system is (laughs) organized such that their voters are in rural areas and rural voters votes are more powerful in our system. And so uh, they get a little less than half and they can get majorities. And you can, you know, we can elect a majority of the Senate with 17 percent of Americans. I mean, it was intentionally created that way to help agrarian people originally. But because we've sorted geographically, we have this one party that's disproportionately empowered just by our laws. So this is going to be an argument for a while, I think. And, And honestly, you know. The way that I think about it is the U.S. has never really had like a real reckoning with its legacy of racial violence and, and prejudice and intolerance the way that, you know, Germany did with Nazism, right, or Rwanda did with, with the genocide. And every time we try, people get really upset, right? Like the 1619 Project is extremely controversial because it was an attempt at that kind of reckoning, and then there was huge backlash against it. And so, you know, if we were ever to try, let's say hypothetically, if we were ever to try to have that reckoning, we would see inevitably a massive backlash from white supremacy. And it's possible that we're doing that, right? That that's what we're, that we're in it right now, that we're trying to have the reckoning and we're seeing the inevitable backlash from white supremacy. And that, I, you know, it very, it very well describes actually what we feel like we're living through right now. And so, you know, the the potential is that we're going through a process that's going to be messy and can never happen without messiness and extreme conflict and backlash. That's the optimistic scenario. But we're not through with, you know, we're not done with the process. We're barely starting the process. And so it's something that's, I you know, it's going to have to play out either with the suppression of that, of that sort of move toward a reckoning or or with the reckoning occurring and, you know, kind of having that backlash be kind of go back to being somewhat suppressed by social norms, which is where it was before, before Trump, really, right? When we had, we had social norms against 
overtly white supremacist statements, for instance. And those norms were pretty well enforced in society in general and in, in, in politics in particular. And they're just not being enforced right now. So because this backlash is, is so empowered. So it's possible, you know, to kind of get past this, maybe. But that's, you know, that's what I think. That's where I think we are. I think that we're in the middle of a very messy process. And we're just not sure how it's going to end up. Dr. Liliana Mason, thank you so much for helping us get to the truth of the matter about this extremely complex issue of polarization. Really appreciate your time today and can't wait to have you back when the book comes out. Thank you so much. It was, it was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 